Hi, I'm Colin Stein, a producer here at Price Talks. You may have noticed we've been on a bit of a hiatus, but rest assured, we're back and we have some great episodes in the can while Gord is off to Australia for six weeks. While down there, Gord will be posting on Instagram, which you can check out on Instagram at Price Tags, and he'll also be sending interviews. And we've hired a new producer, Andrew Walsh, who you'll be hearing from over the next couple of months uh, to help us out with the podcast and the blog. And um, thanks so much for your support. And here we go. I'm Gord Price, and this is Price Talks. Let's talk housing. And let's talk housing with the guy whose job it is to talk housing. Mark Sakai, is that an adequate job description? Uh, I would say that's a, that's a fair job description. It's not, uh, it's not complete. But well, tell us more. <laughs> what do you do? Well, I am the Director of Government Relations for the Home Builders Association Vancouver. Haven, 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 close to Haven. Heaven. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we use Haven. Haven, H A V A N. Home Builders Association, Vancouver. And we mean Metro Vancouver. We mean Metro Vancouver. That's right. Yeah, well, we used to be called the Greater Vancouver Home Builders Association, which doesn't really roll off the tongue. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's face it. You're a lobbyist. That's what That's you do. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. I I'm I do advocate for. Advocate for the home building industry. To whom? Uh, local governments mainly, uh, but also we have a provincial uh, association which I participate in, and we, there's also a national association in Ottawa that we also participate so in. So if someone knows who's who in the housing biz, it's Mark Sakai. Well, I'm one of the people. Yeah, but you've been at this for how long? Uh, uh, seven years or so. Yeah, and before that? Well, before that, it was a bunch of different stuff. I was a custom home builder for 10 years, but between that and this, I ran museums and historic sites uh, for 11 years um, in uh, the the Gulf of Georgia Cannery National Historic Site in Steveston and the Delta Museum and Archives in Ladner. So you are a... I'm I'm thinking, your background... Where were you born? Well, I was born at VGH, um, although... Where uh, did they take you home to? They took me home to Steveston. Steveston? Yes. And how far does the family go back in Steveston? The family goes back, my father's side goes back to 1900, so uh, a fair bit of time. Uh, my mother's family was uh, originally settled in Namu, which is a tiny, tiny company fishing village. Uh, up the uh, central coast near Fitzhugh Sound. So your roots are in fishing? Yes, definitely. And Japan? Uh, well, my, uh, my great-grandfather on my father's side was the first one uh, to come uh, to Canada, and he's the one who came in 1900 to Steveston from a tiny fishing village in uh, Wakayama Prefecture uh, to fish for salmon. Something happened? Um... What, to the family? Oh, it happened to virtually every, well, actually it happened to every uh, family of Japanese extraction uh, in uh, the early 1940s, where we were uh, uh, relocated to, uh, in my family's case, my father's family to um, East Lillooet, my mother's family to Greenwood. And, uh, you know, when the war ended uh, in uh, the middle of the decade, uh, unlike the American experience where they were basically they opened the gates to the internment camps and they were allowed to return back to their homes which were still there their vehicles their fishing boats in canada um, everything was confiscated and sold so there was no returning back to your property and for those who were from the coast and fishing families there was no returning to the coast because the options for those families was you relocate east of the Rockies, or you repatriate to Japan. Wow. Uh, you could not relocate to the coast, meaning fishermen, fishing families, could not go back to their livelihood until 1949, when that um, ruling was, uh, was lifted. But the family did come back to Steveston. Yes, both families did come back to the coast. Um, 
through sort of circuitous ways. Uh, my father's family sort of played the delay game and ended up sort of hanging around the Lytton um, area uh, until 1949. And then my mom's family uh, actually went to Japan. So if, if they couldn't return to fishing, what did they do? Uh, when they were in East Lillooet, my father's family, uh, you know, the, East Lillooet was interesting. It wasn't an internment camp, so to say. It was one of those what they called a self-sustaining community. So they actually had some, some land where they could grow vegetables and fruit and you know, provide for themselves and sell to the, the local um, uh, residents in Lillooet. So I you know, believe that that's what they did for uh, about four years until my grandfather, uh, my uncle, and my dad um, were the first ones to come down, back down to Steeston and start fishing again. Ah. Was there any connection as well to home building? Um, not immediately. Uh, I think, um, you know, my father was a fisherman uh, because it was the family business. Uh, and I think he realized at some point that there's other things to do. Uh, he actually enjoyed working with his hands, working with wood. Uh, he became uh, an apprentice carpenter uh, and started working, framing houses. Um, and then eventually that converted, became a, con uh, a contracting company, and he became a builder. And he built a lot of houses, probably three to 400 houses in Richmond and also in um, you know Vancouver and various other municipalities, and I sort of took over that for ten years. Her family story has these two tracks, doesn't it? it had, yeah, it has multiple tracks, right? I think I'm just like most people's families have. It's never a straight line. And this connection, though, between the immigrant experience and home building, construction, home building, development, real estate—that story you can tell for lots of different immigrant groups. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it's certainly, if you look at you know, sort of the makeup of the, the home building industry and uh, who a lot of our members are, you know, there are, I mean, when I was, when I was working and when I was, uh, you know, helping out with my dad's company when I was young and then when I took over the, my dad's company, um, you know, we dealt with a lot of people uh, from a lot of different immigrant groups, whether they were uh, South Asian, whether they were uh, from from uh, East Asia, whether they were from uh, Scandinavia or Germany or Scotland, it's it's you know home building is one of those things where no matter where you are, people build homes in every country in the world, and when they come here, they have these skills and they use them. Were they building homes? Are they building homes for that immigrant experience? I'm thinking more the extended family, a recognition that this is access into the middle class, the Canadian dream. You know, I think um, there's an evolution uh, of immigrant families, first generation, second generation, you know, when they first arrive. You know, most immigrant um, stories of this, an immigrant wave, you know, when they first arrive, they're fairly insular. They stick to uh, the people that they know. You know, there's language, there's food, there's, you know, traditions. Uh, and I think a lot of the houses that my father built originally and a lot of the ones that he framed for, people he framed for originally, were a lot of the people that, um, uh, in Steveston, that uh, the Japanese community, because as you know, there was, there was and still remains a fairly significant Japanese community in Steveston, but did they build the houses with a particular intent to serve the culture of that community? I or were they building just a generic house? I, I think, um, you know, I think it was interesting after, after the war experience for Japanese Canadians, there was a real a desire to become Canadian, to, uh, to prove to people that, you know, we're not Japanese, we are Canadian. And so this, I think there was a lot of uh, desire to build a classic Canadian house. So I think when I, when I look back to the, the types of houses that my father was building, um, say in the, in the 60s, the 70s, uh, it really does look like the, the classic Richmond um, suburban house. Okay, let's talk about that. So a classic Richmond suburban house circa 1955. Shall we go there? What was that house about? What did it look like? How big was it? What was its relationship to other houses? Well, 
at that time in Richmond, it's um, it was the time when Richmond was converting from uh, an agricultural community to a bedroom community. So you had Oak Street Bridge, the Oak Street Bridge, the tunnel. Um, you know, also you know the development of the airport. You know, the larger uh, and the development of of uh, you know. Riverfront, riverfront industrial. So Richmond was sort of becoming coming to its own Boom. during that. Yeah, during that era for sure. And um, if you look at the layout of Richmond, it's this grid network. You know, you have these these section streets, section roads. Number one, number two, number three. They're all one mile apart. Uh, and then you've got the uh, the east-west roads, and then so eventually it became the road. They built roads uh, in between the section roads. So they so so there's a grid, half a mile apart, uh, each road. And um, though in between those roads in the center were the farms or initially, uh, and then the, you can still see, actually, there are still some farm houses of the old farm houses on those section roads that were fronting the farms. There aren't a lot of them left anymore, but you can still find them. And so if you look at the, the pattern, if you look at the street map of Richmond now, you see the section roads, and you see these neighborhoods built, all built in that sort of uh, classic, you know, 50s, 60s sort of urban planning sort of... Describe that. What well, it it's, like? it, it's, it's sometimes people just describe it as these curvilinear roads uh, sort of dropped in the middle of the square. Uh, usually there's a school somewhere in the middle, and at the corners, at the uh, you'll probably find a, a corner store, or in some you know uh, places you'll find a sort of a neighborhood shopping center with a Safeway or an IGA, um, and then you know maybe be, sidewalks, but maybe not. Well, I think initially there were probably no sidewalks. I mean, you can still see some of the neighborhoods in Richmond that that don't have sidewalks. So this is about exactly the time. When we switch from the expectation that people will walk and take streetcars, they're going to drive. Yes. So for the first time, we're building garages? Yeah, car, from going from carports to garages. And in, in some cases, you know, a lot of those houses still had carports. The car now becomes a member of the family. It has its own room. Yeah, or at least a space. I remember the house that I grew up in, uh, you know, from let's see the time that I was uh, seven until I left home in my early 20s, it just had a double carport. There was no enclosed garage. Did you have your own room, your own bedroom? Uh, initially, no. Uh, I shared my, my room with my brother. And then, as what happens in most of these houses, the unfinished basement became finished. And there you added a couple more bedrooms, and then I had my own room. Whoa. I went through exactly the same thing. Yeah. I, I think it's fairly typical for, those, for us suburban kids. And how big was the house? How many square feet? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know for sure. I would guess that it was about twenty six to twenty eight hundred square feet. That's still pretty big. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was two full floors, and because the lot was big, it was a one. It was a, a bit of an unusual lot. It was a wide lot that uh, was a little bit shallower than most lots. Was it just for the Sakai nuclear family, as we say, mom, dad, and the kids? Or were there relatives or, or maybe even a border? Was there uh, any illegal secondary suite? There were no secondary suites, um, but uh, we had a big backyard, which my, um, my dad said, uh, and I think there was a, an ulterior motive to this, but he put in a swimming pool, an in-ground swimming pool. He put in a hot tub. We actually had a little um, uh, fire pit so, and I think the ulterior motive was to make sure he can keep track of us when we became, you know, our early teenagers. This is a total suburban dream. It was, because it was the hangout. Everyone wanted to come to our house on on the weekends uh, because it had the swimming pool, it had a hot tub, it had a fire pit. Uh, it, was, it was a great house to grow up in. And this was the 1950s. Well, this was the 60s. 60s. Okay, 60s. but still, we're in easy living memory yeah. of internment camps, for God's sake. Well, uh, you know... And, and it, you guys, you're right into the Canadian middle class dream. But it was interesting you talk about the internment camps, because it took a long time before we found out as kids about the internment camps. Whoa. Um, and it actually wasn't until um, a really, really good social studies teacher I had... Uh, talked about it. And I kind of said, what is this? Because, of course, it wasn't in textbooks. It wasn't part of the school curriculum. 
And so I but your went back. Dad and, didn't even tell you about it. No one. It was it was sort of this, wow. this code of silence. Yeah. And then it was well. Did this happen to you guys? It must have happened to you guys. Yeah, 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 it did. And then, of course, in the late 70s and early 80s, the whole redress campaign started amongst the National Association of Japanese Canadians. And then there was a lot more education, publicity. I'm wondering if that house, did your dad buy it from a builder? Oh, no, he built it. He built it? Yeah. Swimming pool and all? Well, it was in stages. It wasn't built with a swimming pool. All right, but still. Yeah, and and believe you got me, the dream I, of the swimming pool. I believe me, as as the as the oldest kid and the one who cut the grass, I was sure glad when that swimming pool <laughs> went in because it reduced the amount of grass in that backyard by about eighty percent. Are you the only? What is it? Brown, yellow, whatever you want to distinguish yourself with. The only kid like that on the block. Oh gosh, no, no, no. no our, I mean, I lived in Steveston, right? Steveston was. I mean, I don't know the per- percentage at the time, but I would guess 40%. So your school, your homeroom, how many kids? Well, in, in elementary school, I mean, we, I, I would say the school is 40% Japanese. All right. And are all of them now living in these classic post-war single-family houses? Well, very few of them live in Rich Steveston anymore. No, but at that time? Oh, at the time, we were all living in pretty well the same type of housing. Um, so this was actually a critical, important statement about your Canadianness. You know, it never seems like it at the time, right? It's just the way you grew up. Do you think it's still true? What? What is someone true? comes here, let's say from Africa now, do you think they have the same dream? That's a good question. I'd have to ask them. Isn't uh, that what you guys are selling? The home builders? Well, I think... Haven. Yeah, I mean, Haven, we don't sell the dream, you know, in terms of what the dream was for for us because for us housing isn't just single family houses on large lots with green space and swimming pools right housing is a lot of different things to different people so i think for for us and i think you're segueing into housing from background is is what we try to advocate for the most is to provide housing choice okay you're not Going to sell me a single-family house anymore? If you want to buy a single-family house, How much will you sell me one for? That's choice, right? That's exactly what that is. What are we talking about here, Mark? Well, of course. Well, it depends where you are. All right. Depends where you want that that house to be, how big it is. Where do most of your your builders build? Um, If you look at the stats and you look at the number of houses that are built and the number of housing units that are built, and you look at the proportions throughout um, uh, Metro Vancouver... That's the answer. So if you look at the number, the largest number of units are built in Vancouver and Surrey, uh, lots in Langley, um, quite a few in Richmond, quite a few in Maple Ridge and Burnaby. That's where our members do most of their business. The North Shore, obviously, the Northeast sector, um, south of the Fraser, Delta, White Rock. Um, I'm surprised to hear that still most of the units would be in Surrey and Vancouver. Well, it's simply a matter of population. It's where it's the, the I two. I thought it would be a matter of land. It is, but it's um, in Vancouver, of course, it's um, infill. In Surrey, it's infill plus some greenfield. Uh, Langley, it's, you know, there's always, in most municipalities, there's um, uh, a mixture of greenfield and, and infill if you're talking about um, sort of the. Northeast sector, Coquitlam, Maple Ridge, uh, Langley Township, um, Surrey, um, a little bit in Delta. But, it, but for most of the other uh, municipalities, um, it's, it's infill. Can you no describe need. what percent of each kind of home you build? Uh, so single I, family, if that exists anymore. Townhouse, row house, small apartment building. You know, again, if you look at the stats for Metro Vancouver, um, <clears throat> it's surprising that the single-family home is still quite dominant. Um, there are a lot of single-family homes still being built in Coquitlam, Maple Ridge, Langley Township, Surrey, um, and Vancouver. Right? And, but in Vancouver, Richmond, Burnaby, it's all infill, whereas in the other places, it's a combination of infill and greenfield. Now, but, when you say infill, it would mean the demolition of the existing house and replacement with a more contemporary, larger, more expensive version? Yes. 
Yes, because as you know, in Vancouver, you know, greenfield is a non-existent word. There is no green greenfield. Um, there are, um, and we've seen over the last couple of decades, conversion of land from non-residential to residential. Uh, for example, Coal Harbor, uh, False Creek. And we're going to continue to see that uh, in places like um, the MST lands, for sure. Um, the um, the RCMP headquarters in the Marpole Oak Ridge area, uh, the um, Jericho lands, and uh, other lands such as the Oak Ridge bus barns. Uh, so, you know, the, the but you guys of, don't build that stuff. That's well. That's those. A lot of those builders are our members as well. So I think really you know, you're you think you're thinking about the large developers. Yes. Um, and so you know, there's the other large organization that represents um, developers, and that's UDI. And UDI has members who Urban build, Development Institute. Urban Development Institute, and they have members who who build um, you know residential and commercial and industrial um, uh, hotels, that type of thing. We have members who build residential, but the sort of Venn diagram um, center of that is multifamily residential. So those um, companies that build uh, multifamily residential are UDI members, but a lot of them are also Haven members. Okay, so let's go back to try and figure out just what is getting built out there. Single family house, still, still being built in large numbers, but what percent would you say of housing units. Oh, Gordon, you know, I could have brought you these oh, numbers. I, could have I thought you'd you, know that off the top of your uh, head. You know, I know generally sort of range, but, and again, it really depends on different municipalities. I'll go with the range. You know, I, I, I would say okay, that half or less. It's probably less. All right. So what's the next major kind of housing? Next major kind is probably either the um, multifamily residential, like apartments, or townhouses. And again, it depends where you are. Like in some areas, townhouses are very, very, very popular, uh, almost dominant. And in some areas, it's the apartment form that is more dominant in terms of multifamily. It would almost seem to me, someone who rarely ventures beyond Main Street, I'll confess, that when I go out to places like Surrey and Langley, it seems like the dominant mode form is row housing. Well, townhouses. Townhouses, yes. There's a, if you look to, at a lot of uh, the development uh, in Surrey, in Langley, uh, probably in uh, Maple Ridge, Coquitlam, you know, there's a lot of single family, there's a lot of townhouses, and you're starting to see more um, low-rise um, multifamily, you know, the wood frame, you know, four to six story. Uh, and oh, oh, really? Wood frame, four to six story, how many units? Roughly? You know, if you look at the Canby Corridor, that's all you're seeing, right? Uh, and uh, you're starting to see it in um, quite a bit in Richmond, you know, in the uh, Oval area and also along the Canada Line. But you're starting to see, you know, that's a mix of that and, and the concrete. So maybe 50 units, plus or minus. Oh, more like probably 80 to 90. All right. right? And this would be similar to the kind of low-rise apartment buildings that were common, say, in the 70s? Well, I mean, if you look at form, right? I mean, if yep. um, you know, the, I mean, my first my first place uh, after leaving home was uh, the classic three story walk up in Fairview, nineteen forties, probably. Yeah, and uh, uh, and those those types of buildings are still here. But uh, but if you go through my old neighborhood there, you still you see those buildings, and then you see the odd, you know. 12 to 14 story concrete high rise as well. Right. So Mark, I was always struck when I was on the regional district board by a statistic I remember hearing. We as a region stopped building a majority of housing and single family home somewhere in the late 1980s. And after that, it has all been one way or the other, multifamily, whether a row house, a small apartment building, a high rise. I don't think most people realize that. I think they're still thinking that out there in the suburbs, other side of Boundary Road, it's still pretty classic single-family suburban. I would disagree. I certainly would too, but yeah. it's a bit of a shock to realize that we passed that point a long time ago. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that we're never going to eliminate single-family housing. 
you know, people it's just very expensive single yeah, family. It's 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 expensive. I mean, it's less expensive in Abbotsford. It's less expensive in uh, Maple Ridge. You've almost got to go beyond the regional boundaries. Well, you know, it, it, it's it depends on what stage of life you're at and what stage of your you know your career you're at. You know, there's there's what's called the housing ladder, and the top rung of that housing ladder, for a lot of people, is the single family house. You know, single family detached single detached house on a uh, on a lot. It's the icon. It is, and it's but not everyone has that as the top rung. It's aspirational? For some people, but I think that's the thing. The, sort of the, the, the prototypical Canadian dream was that that was the pinnacle, the top rung of the ladder for everyone, but I don't think it is anymore. And well, I don't think more than that, it was the expectation, in a sense, by being Canadian, you had a right to that. That was what, in a sense, our affluent society provided. It was the social norm. Well, and it's, it's probably true in Brandon, Manitoba, that, you know, regardless of, you know, you don't have to be a partner in a law firm to get to that top rung as a, and have a single family house on a lot. But, you know, it's, it's a, you know, the markets are different in different places. There is no national housing market. There are only local housing so markets. So what do you think most people now want? You know, I don't think it matters because I think... The, the, Give me a roof. <laughs> I, think, I think what, it ma- what matters is... is is can you find what you want at your stage of life? That's what matters. Because when I left my home, uh, when I left my family home in 19, well, I'm not going to say what year, when I was 24, I didn't expect or want to be in another single-family house like I just left. Until you had kids. Well, I, well, A, it was financially unrealistic, and B, it was stupid. I wouldn't want to look. I just came from cutting lawns. I didn't want to cut my own lawn too. Um, so you know, it was there's when you're young, you don't want to be sitting there cutting your own lawn. You want to be out doing fun things, and cutting lawns is usually not a fun well, thing. Well, you moved to the West End, dude. Come on, <laughs> I moved to Fairview, right? Close so, enough. And uh, and and that's what I wanted at that time, and it was available at that time, and it was it fit my budget at that time. So you know, I think that's the important thing is that. No matter what stage of life you're at, you're going to have a different housing need. And as those needs change, that type of housing that you want should be available. Is that really what the issue is about? I think affordability is almost a useless word. Right? There's no real definition of it. It's more than what I can afford. It's either simply not available or not realistically part of my expectations. And that, that hurts culturally. But I am thinking maybe the issue comes down to I just don't have the choice when I need it. Well, I think you're right. I think people have expectations, and when those expectations are not met because of cost or availability um, or, or simply units, the type of thing you want not being around, that's disappointing. And as you say, it hurts. And people think, oh, what am I going to do now? Um, there's some, you know. And that's what we're all feeling. That's the nub of the political issue. That's what. Uh, a leader wants to respond to. I want to provide you with a choice appropriate to your circumstances at the time of your life. That should be what we're what housing policy should be about. It won't be cheap. Well, it doesn't, but it doesn't have to be um, ridiculously expensive. Well, that's unaffordable. You can't afford it. Now, thirty percent housing cost in your income, maybe not at thirty, but at least that choice might be available to you. And I think for many, particularly millennials, it isn't. Probably true. Or is it? Or are we exaggerating? Uh, is Haven actually providing a product? We're provi- Just not necessarily where people would like it? Well, we're providing product that we can and where we can do it. And I think you know, that's another element of the problem is that you're not allowed to do things in a lot of places. Um, and, you know, we, we can oh, only... Give an example. Oh, Jeez, Gord. I, yeah, I, I wonder if I could think Name of names. one. I wonder if I could think of one. Uh, well, for example, if um, you know, we've done reports where we looked at um, infill housing, and we identified that you know approximately two thirds of the residential land in the Lower Mainland in Metro Vancouver is reserved for a certain type of housing that is primarily unaffordable to a large number of two-thirds, people. Two thirds, and not just in Vancouver. So 
why do you think that is? Given that the demand is more than self-evident. Well, I heard someone, um, uh, a smart person, tell me about something about the grand bargain a little while ago. And, uh, you know, I think uh, it's it's the grand bargain. That's, okay. That tell one. me what that grand bargain is. Oh, I'm telling you, I, I think I think that's... Oh, uh, well, yeah. How do you hear it? Well, how I hear it is the grand bargain is, is a deal made with the, with the voters, uh, the electorate, that says, you know, we'll provide um, some high-density multifamily housing in these specific areas, and we'll leave your precious single-family neighborhoods alone, and we won't touch it, and we promise. That's the bargain? They said yes. And for, the, for a lot of lower mainland municipalities, they're sticking with that bargain. You and can sure see it in the District of North Vancouver. I want to name names. I thought they were the first new council to kind of shoot across the bow when they turned down a, a project underway for planning in two years, lots of consultation. Basically, if not non-market, close to it, provided amenities, and they said no. Uh, shoot across the bow. I think they, they tossed two torpedoes right amidships on that one. Uh, interesting enough, though, they did just approve a form of that project at, at Delbrook. All right. So, you know, it's, it's lower because, you know, certain people wanted it to be lower. Well, all right. So... <laughs> Two-thirds, nonetheless, locked up in an essentially unaffordable product when the demand clearly stated, broadly, not just generational, is for a different kind of product that you guys would be more than willing to provide. Do I say that correctly? You do say that correctly. I do. So, again, why is the resistance? So, I understand the grand bargain, and I, I get it, but we've got this generational change occurring. Well, I think... We've seen it play out quite a bit in uh, in most municipalities in Metro Vancouver. And there's resistance to change. If you've been living in a, uh, a single detached dwelling in a leafy neighborhood for you know, 30 years uh, and someone comes along and says, hey, I want to build a, a triplex here with a laneway house and it's going to be a, a two s- secondary suites, they're going to go, what? Mm-hmm. That's not what we see here. That's going to cause parking issues. There's going to be more traffic. Not what I bought into. Yeah, it's, this, is, this is not what we do here. Do you think this is true for a newcomer who's bought into this idyllic, iconic environment, maybe from Asia, and will fight as hard as a person who's been there 30 years to preserve it? Oh, I'm sure it will. I mean, it comes down to protecting your own interest. Um, and your com- asset value. And asset value, and yeah, interest meaning whether it's uh, the interest of um, financial interest or perceived sort of um, threats to your family or your household. It's, it's, it's self-interest uh, over uh, interests of the whole. Isn't that, if not fair, understandable? Oh, it is understandable. Um, but it demonstrates uh, a certain limited thinking and, um, and again, self-interest. You know, you don't want to call it being, uh, you can call it being selfish. Sure. Let's speculate. How long do you think that's going to last, those barriers to change, the change on the color on the map, on the zoning map? Uh, you know, it really depends. I think it's, it's, it's up to council. Right? Councils have, Agreed, to, but have, to, uh, have to come around to that. And I think... How are they doing? Well, you're start, you're, there's differences in different councils, and that's that's the thing about Metro Vancouver. It's not one place. It's okay, so you're on the front line of all that. Where do you see the change beginning to occur? Well, Vancouver certainly. Um, you know, when the previous council started the uh, Making Room initiative, they started with um, duplexes and RS. You know, it was a good start. Um, I think there's there's um, more work to be done. I think this current council, for the most part, is on board with continuing that and starting to see more diversity of form and housing choice in the So RS. at least in Vancouver, it's no longer heresy to say there will be no more single-family zoning. So we've already reached that. That used to be heresy. Now, I think it's an expectation. I would hope so. All right. What about outside Vancouver? Where is the change likely to occur? Burnaby 
is starting to talk about things that they haven't talked about in years under a previous mayor. The new mayor, despite the fact that the council is almost exactly the same, the new mayor and the new council, this council has started talking about secondary suites in a larger way. They're starting to talk about laneway houses. Um, that was never talked about in Burnaby. In Richmond, they've done, they've brought in some policy to um, uh, allow higher density on those arterial roads, those big section roads that I was talking about earlier, um, uh, to allow townhouses and, and higher density um, forms, you know, to mid-density mid forms of housing. They haven't touched the middle sections of those neighborhoods yet, which I think is the next big step for them. Uh, Coquitlam has uh, their housing choices policy for their sort of southeast established neighborhoods. Um, you know, so I think there is there is some movement. I think there's a lot more to be done. Do your members anticipate this change coming and are getting ready for it? I think they they're seeing the change as it's happening in certain areas. You know, I think one thing about our membership is be is because they represent the best builders, the best developers, the best designers, the best uh, trades in in residential construction in Metro Vancouver, they're very quick to adapt to situations. They understand how to do things. They understand how houses work, how the construction works. They, they know it. Oh, well, let's talk about that. So one of your, your quote, builders, we're not calling them developers. We're calling them, do they buy the land? Do they design the house? Do they build it and sell it? Do they do all of those things? They can. All right. They, What's common? It's fairly common. Uh, whether it's um, you're you're buying a lot and building it and then selling it to someone who you haven't identified, or you're doing a custom work for someone who who already owns the lot and wants to either do a renovation or an addition or a complete rebuild. Um, you know, there's there's a, I think that's the thing. There's people in different circumstances. And our members can serve all of them. So they're generalists, maybe from beginning land to final product, to specialists who go in there and provide particular needs in the housing continuum. Yes. All right. Yeah. So you say they're flexible. How can they be flexible? What is, give me an example. Well, I think the best example is in energy efficiency. Because we have the BC Energy Step Code now that sets a roadmap for the construction of um, net zero energy buildings in British Columbia by 2032. That will be the code requirement. So a lot of our builders... Net zero. Net zero energy. What's so essentially that? houses that, you know, either use extremely small amounts of energy in their heating um, and hot water, um, uh, domestic hot water um, and air ventilation, or use um, a tiny amount. And that's to be the new norm. By 2032, that's going to be the, the base code. Did your, did your builders find that shocking when it was first proposed? Well, it, was, um, it came about... Uh, under the, the previous um, Liberal government as part of a, um, sort of a, a um, energy, clean BC um, initiative and also a, um, the Building Act that basically stripped away from local governments the ability to have specific energy um, technical requirements in bylaw form. So the province... Be, therefore became the the arbiter or the determiner of technical um, code requirements for all municipalities. And so, for example, if one municipality said, okay, well, we want you to build to uh, built green, silver, one municipality said, we want you to build to, to um, enter guide or uh, a level, you couldn't do that anymore. You had to build to what was called step code one to step code five. Were you guys on board? Yes. Why? Because this was an initiative of the province that was going to have a significant impact on the way um, houses and, and, and residential units were built over the next 20 years, and therefore we need to be part of that consultation group. So you felt 20 years was a reasonable time frame to adapt to, to I would have thought, stuff you didn't even know how to do. 
Well, some, some members are already doing it. Some members were already building passive houses, net zero energy houses, R2000 houses. Um, Geez, that's sure not the image of you guys. You know, it's, it's important to know that, as I said before, our members are the best builders. And the best builders know how to build the best houses, whether it be architecturally, you know, extremely amazing architectural houses, or whether it's the ultimate energy efficient houses, or whether it's in difficult terrain or... So because they're very responsive to a changing market, they could see far enough ahead to know that this whole thing about net zero and energy efficiency and, oh, let's throw in climate change and all the rest of it wasn't just a bunch of uh, politicians talking or community activists. This was a reality they were going to have to incorporate into their actual way of working. Is that fair? It's absolutely fair. Um, The smartest builders and developers you know, see what's coming and prepare for it. And they're ready for it before it comes. Uh, you can look at um, the push to energy efficient housing as a tide. And you can't really hold back the tide, but you can adapt to it. You can be ready for it. And our, the smartest of our members are ready for it now. They're building um, those types of houses to step five um, the, the net zero energy and passive houses, they're building it today. And, you know, there's a certain market of homeowners out there who will look at that and then it appeals to them. You know, the, the argument for our builders is that, look... But it won't matter. They're well, going to get it whether they appeal to it or not. But we're, we can build you a house today that's completely future-proofed in terms of what is expected in 2032. So you're getting that 2032 house today. It's like going to somebody and say, well, we'll sell you the what's going to be the, the 2030 Tesla. Could would you want to get that today? You can get it today. You know, it's not possible, but it is possible in construction. All right. Beyond 2032, what are you seeing coming? What are you starting to realize you're going to have to adapt to? Well, the step code, the way it is, it really looks at um, energy use, uh, air tightness. So the building envelope. Um, now, the step code might evolve between now and 2032. It's, it's a constantly sort of evolving thing, just like the building code. Um, I think what it's going to incorporate more is renewables on site. Which means? Well, solar, for sure. Right? That's, the, uh, that's the obvious one. Um, you know, in certain uh, larger forms of housing, you know, you're already seeing um, geothermal exchange. Um, you know, it's very popular in Richmond. Um, and so, uh, you know, you're going to incorporate more and more of those elements in so that you're not just building um, an envelope, building envelope that's extremely um, uh, resistant to leaking heat or in, will, will become more important in the future is um, shedding heat, you know, resisting heat coming from, from the external environment. Uh, overheating is going to be a much bigger problem that we haven't had much in the lower mainland. But as you see, that the that every new unit includes air conditioning, that's that's something that is is going to become more and more prevalent. So when you guys get together, <coughs> and you are largely guys, and uh, some of you definitely look like you know how to work a hammer and all the rest, you could build a house. You're talking climate change, not as something abstract or political. You're actually trying to figure out what's coming down so that you can be strategic in your response. Is that fair? One of our one of our association's biggest challenges and biggest efforts is in education and training. Um, you know, you can look at builders, and you say builders. You know, builders are just like anything. It's not a homogeneous group, right? There's a I always say there's a bell curve, and the front edge of the bell curve are those builders I talked about. The innovators, the ones who are out in front, the ones who are who who are taking the training, who understand, you know, high high performance building envelopes. Then there's the middle, the big hump of the bell curve, and that's this large group who build competent houses, but are working their way up towards the front end of the curve. The back end of the curve are those, you know, the either late adopters or flat out deniers. Um, you know, we're not exactly sure how to do with them. They'll either, when they see these new requirements coming, they'll either, you know, drop out of the industry or they'll be forced to up their game. 
And so what are what Haven's uh, education and training efforts are, are is to move that large center hump of the bell curve forward by providing the the courses that they need to become those uh, towards the front end. And whether it's um, air tightness training or uh, the use of, of uh, new materials, um, use of new uh, mechanical equipment, um, the performance, how to, how to uh, um, use energy modeling and the blower door tests to test how well your house is doing. That's, that's the big the big effort on our part. And of course, so we, new technologies. Yeah. yeah. And of course, we're not even talking. We're just talking about new builds. We haven't talked at all about the existing building stock, which really, if you look at energy use, you know, that's the big, you know, elephant in the room, so to speak, because it's the largest proportion of, the, of, of houses out there are houses that are not built to current or are not going to be built to current code, but are sitting there as a 19... 10 heritage house, or there's a 19, late, early 1970s stucco house, or there's a Vancouver special. These houses are running on um, you know, outdated mechanical equipment. They have inadequate windows. They have inadequate insulation. Um, so what do we do and with these And you guys houses? are thinking opportunity. Well, we're thinking there's going to be requirements, right? They're just like the STEP code, the government is going to impose requirements on what to do to these houses to make them uh, more energy efficient and have a smaller greenhouse gas emissions footprint. So, yes. You're I mean, the ones who are actually going to do it. Yeah, a lot, of our, a lot of our members are renovators as well. They're not no. just builders. When it comes to then pushing the boundaries on response to climate change, when it comes to thinking about how this region's going to develop, uh, to romanticize this a bit much, but uh, if the advocates and the activists aren't talking to you, they're kind of missing the point, aren't they? Probably, but we, we impose ourselves into these conversations as well. How do you do that? Well, we I scan uh, opportunities to... to provide our feedback and I do so because as you said you if you're not talking about uh, housing or if you are talking about housing and you're not talking about the people who build it not talking to the people who build it the people who know how things policies regulations guidelines look on the ground then you're basically flying blind and for those who may believe that uh, basically I have to bunch deal with a bunch of Neanderthals who don't want to change want to keep building these incredibly profitable single-family houses, uh, they're mistaken. Well, you can, build a, you can be profitable building an a energy-efficient house as well. Uh, and in fact, you know, I don't see too many of our, our, our high-end, uh, high-performance builders you know, suffering. They're actually doing quite well. Okay. So you guys won't be building the truly affordable, what we'd call non-market housing, most of our members are not involved in the non-market housing. All right. So field. that's really the crisis of affordability. Do you have anything to say about it? Well, I think the the reason we've can the market actually be relied upon to address this fundamental question of equity. When you look at the housing spectrum, right? There's there's you know it is a spectrum. So there's. Um, sort of shelter-type housing, you know, temporary modular housing that's addressing that, that part of the spectrum. And then there's, there's co-ops, and, uh, which are, you know, almost market housing. And so, you know, we've, we've talked about if you build supply, you know, you're, you, what normally happens when you build new supply is that people move into it. Well, they're moving out of, if they're moving into that, they're probably moving out of something. Right, so um, trickle down effect. There is a trickle down effect. People make fun of that, but in real life, it actually does happen. Right? I mean, when I moved, when I when I built the house that I'm living in now, I moved out of a at the time 30 year old townhouse. So that 30 year old townhouse became a piece of the supply for someone who needed uh, uh, an entry level house. But what seems to be missing. Good old missing middle conversation here. It's not the form of the housing. That we know how to do and are doing it, whether townhouse or small apartment building. It's that we can't do it cheaply enough. 
We can't build the Vancouver Special circa 2020. We can't even build a condominium in the form of a, say, 1960 apartment building which just stacked up concrete. If you can't provide a simple, non-architect-involved minimum amenity and, and basically minimum efficiency, can you ever address affordability in the way that we did so successfully after the war? It's a challenge. It's a huge challenge. And I think the big challenge is the land. You know, back then, there was land. There was land that we could basically just say, okay, let's build, build more housing on this land because it's there. We don't have that anymore. We don't, you know, we've, you know, through, you know, and, and you can't really fault any of these policies, but uh, the livable region plan said, here's a hard urban containment boundary. Okay, that's, that's a good policy, you know, contains your, your development. But we you pay know, the price now. Yeah. yeah scarcity. We, yeah, an agricultural land reserve. It's a great idea. No, I don't think anyone would say that. Let's get rid of the ALR. But it imposes certain factors on supply of land. The single biggest factor in terms of affordability is the land? You know, if anyone who owns a piece of land, or especially if they own a, a ground-oriented piece of land, all you have to do is look at your assessment every year. And the assessment breaks down the land amount and the value and the building amount. And it doesn't take long to figure out where the, where the problem is in affordability. Cost of construction. You guys. Well, it, it, it's... Escalating? It's always, always escalating. It never goes down. Over the... I shouldn't say it never goes down. There, you know, when you... When 2008, 2009 hit... Can we squeeze you? If we're concerned primarily about affordability, how much can we squeeze you guys? Well, if you're talking about building the lowest cost housing, you know, in the market realm... Low cost. You know, you, you know, you still ha- you still have to pay DCCs. You still have to pay in many cases CACs. Uh, good pass off to that. Okay, how about then regulation, DCCs, all of these cost impositions? Maybe you have something to say about that. Well, as I said, there's there's so many elements to the cost of building a single housing unit. Um, the only time one of those things, elements, ever goes down is, oh, there's a recession. So all of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of trades and labor that's available. So maybe the, 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 the price you were paying for your trades during a boom time when it was very uh, scarce and you had to pay more for your labor, maybe that goes down. Maybe this price is... Solve your- affordability by having a recession. Great strategy. Oh yeah, I know it's 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 wonderful. It, it helps so many people when you when you go into a, an economic downturn, <laughs> doesn't it? Okay, but we do, in fact, actually remove uh, CACs, these quote contributions. We lower or eliminate cost charges. We do give incentives, certainly in Vancouver, for more affordable housing. Right. And the way it looks like the Squamish are coming in with their Sanok project at the south end of the Burrard Bridge, is that because they have no obligations to pay any of it, they may not. And say to the city, you have an obligation, as you traditionally have, to provide the school, some of the infrastructure, all of that stuff. Fair? It makes for an interesting discussion. Should we lower the bar for all development? Well, it's, it's a, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Is, is, I, I want a $100,000 answer. I'm not asking for the solution, but give me an indicator. You know, I, I, think we, I, don't, I'm not, I don't think we should lower the bar because I don't think we want to compromise seismic requirements. I don't think we want to ignore energy efficiency. Amenity, park, childcare, everything we load on. You know, uh, there's, there's a certain expectation to living in Vancouver. There's a quality of life. There's, reason, there's reasons why people come to Vancouver. And I don't think we necessarily, you know, I don't think we as an association want to be advocating for uh, a lower quality of life for residents. And in fact, one of the main things that we're involved with in a place like Surrey is trying to um, push the provincial government to make sure that schools are in place in the high growth areas so that when people move in to units that are actually being, a lot of them being built by our members, their kids have have schools to go to, and they're not stuck in portables. So Lower our costs, but keep everything. Well, and and I think our our 
advocacy point on this in terms of is efficiency of approvals. You know, there's been recently the provincial development approvals process review. They just you know, brought out their their report on the stakeholder consultation during UBCM in September. So it identified a slew of areas and issues and concerns and places where things could be better. We were doing that back in the 80s. Every council seems to go in with the intent to cut red tape. Well, Why doesn't it happen? Except for North Van District. All right. Um, and maybe White Rock, maybe Port Moody. But if we're going to name names, right? Um, but for us, a lot of it is process because, you know, and it's the cliche, biggest cliche, but time is money. When, you, when it takes you... So why doesn't it happen? Everyone's in agreement. Well, there's a lot of interests that are protected in the approval process. Such as? Well... Policies, right? Every everyone, every council has these wonderful things they want to do. I want to they push want you to on this, though. You said it really wasn't about <coughs> policy; it was about efficiency. Well, efficiency, and it is about both, really. But the efficiency comes down to the way policies look on the ground. The way policies go from being a grand vision at a council meeting working their way through the staff, the regulations, the bylaws, and how it looks So it on just the keeps getting worse because more policies, once you would even advocate for, are being applied? Or, in fact, has there been some improvement in efficiency? Well, there, there has not been an improvement in efficiency. Really? What there, what there is, is is we're seeing things like, okay, you've got uh, a policy and regulations that come from, for example, uh, accessibility. Great. No one can really argue with that. You've got another set of policies that come from uh, affordability or another set of policies that come from energy efficiency, sustainability. You have another set of policies that come from tree retention. And they all, and sometimes they conflict. And sometimes they say, okay, well, this policy says I do this, but this policy says I do this. And you can't do them both because you're, you're only limited on a 33 by, you know, 120 foot lot. And you, if I wanted to provide proper access for wheelchairs, um, I can't have this tree here, but I can't take the tree out. Right? I want to I want to provide affordable housing, but the city requires me to to build to this level of energy efficiency. You know, sure, there's a climate and emergency, but there's also a housing crisis. Which is more important, and which one has priority when the policies clash? You said it's about efficiency and processing. That's project management. That's where technology really does make a difference. Oh, it does. It and can handle complexity. And, and kudos to where it's deserved. City of North Vancouver has is in the process, and they're almost done, of completely redoing their IT uh, systems so that you can come with a project application in digital form and do an e-application, and then you can track at the progress, you can uh, provide comments, they'll provide comments back to you all through email, and you can do it all, you know, send in your, your, um, your revisions digitally. And that sounds like something that should have been around in 2005. Well, and, and, and to be honest, there's, there's many municipalities, well, several municipalities who are trying to do it, uh, not just City of North right. Vancouver. They seem to be the most uh, advanced, but a lot of other municipalities are doing And I think what the, the sort of slow uptake demonstrates how complex it is. All it's right. not a, a, an easy nut to crack. But we do have a consensus. We have technology. Now we have some examples. You would be hoping, I think, that we will see an acceleration in efficiency. Well, what are always what we always like to and see? And is that going to translate into lower housing costs? What we always like to see is which municipalities are adopting best practices and try to promote those best practices to other places. Um, you know, and not only because you want people to be doing things in the most efficient manner, but also because. Consistency is important when you're working throughout 16, 18, 20 municipalities, but most of our builders and most of our members don't work in just one municipality. So some level of consistency would be nice. Or the province saying, as they did with energy, this is the game for all of you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But will that saving, let's assume there is some, get translated into affordability and housing costs? It won't hurt, but the big thing is still land. Right, it's 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 always going to be land in Vancouver. Okay. It's always going to be land. So, optimistically, it will remain an uh, expensive, but still a, a place for choice. Well, and again, th I think this is what what we try to um, advocate for. If you look at a typical Vancouver lot or a lot in Richmond, doesn't really matter, um, and you build a single unit on there, you know the cost of that land is borne by one unit. So 
that's going to contribute, you know, a huge amount to the to the cost of that unit, and was probably was going to make it unaffordable. But if you can build four units on that one lot, and you can distribute the cost of that land into four units instead of one, then all of a sudden you're not looking at you know a million dollar land hit. But what if the demand local and offshore is so great you won't get a significant change until you get to eight units? Or maybe it's not a question of supply at all. You know, I think this is the thing about the housing market as well, is that people tend to think that it's just one thing. Oh, it's just demand. Oh, it's just foreign foreign demand. You know, it's not. And it's, it's, it's supply and demand. It's foreign demand and domestic demand. It's sub-markets. It's demographics. And there's no silver bullet because there's, it, the market is oh, so complex darn. and segmented. I mean, this is where we ended up. No silver bullet. Come on. I want, I want something you can put in a tweet. I want something you can tell me that will make a difference to affordability. Here's my tweet. There is no silver bullet. Ah, So how do people do it? It's always struck me as absurd on the face of it that it said Vancouver is an unaffordable city. No one can afford to live here. My kids have no hope. Well, that can't be true (laughs) because people clearly can, quote, afford it. And it does strike me when I look at it a little more closely. This is it's tied to the immigrant experience. It's tied to the extended family. It's tied to money coming both from offshore and going offshore that helps support the family who can jointly acquire a stake. And in our culture, everybody separates out into their own unit. Maybe they get some family assistance, but by and large, the calculations are done on their own income. What if the right strategy is the immigrant one, the one your family had earlier on, and the one we see today? I watch it particularly in groups like the Filipino community and others. They've had an historic strategy of this. What if that's really what it's about? I think that's a strategy that works for a certain segment of the population. a pretty large one. 52% 52% of the people of Vancouver are, quote, people of color. Now, some have been around a long time, but that reflects how quickly, because of the impact of immigration. And it does seem to me it comes from cultures who do have family strategies for the acquisition of property that would otherwise be too expensive, particularly if land comes from it. They understand the historic meaning of that. And they do seem to be finding a place you know, I think that that model, that approach, was more doable back in the 50s, the 60s, because the the multiple about between what you can acquire and what you're making was smaller than it is today. Were well, you as an individual, but you as a family? Well, for sure. I think even even more so, maybe, because it's... You know, my, I know. I remember when my, you know, when my family first came back from the war, and the house. And I remember the house that we first lived in. It was a huge lot, and it was sitting right beside my uncle's lot, which was a huge lot, which was sitting right beside my grandparents' lot, which was a huge lot. These three massive lots. I think they were eighty feet each frontage and a hundred and probably fifty feet depth and I think they were actually even deeper before and then a subdivision happened uh, a new subdivision came in and they just sold a bunch of it off but they were massive lots and so here was the three of us well um, my 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 grandmother and two of her children two of her ten children uh, living in a row but um, you know that was achievable I doubt if you could achieve that today not something like that but no. But still, the same basic strategy. In a smaller form, perhaps. I think that's, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily help the sort of domestic interprovincial migration crowd. Um, well, know, as you say, no silver bullet. Yeah, it's, it, it works for some people. Um, and again, it's, it comes back down to this ability of providing choice, and providing opportunities for people who are in different circumstances at different stages of life, you know, have different sort of housing traditions, perhaps. But all of those are important. It's, and, I don't, and I think we've been ignoring a lot of them for many, many years. And I think that's got to change. 
fascinating that you, who are active in, in this change, almost within your own lifetime, have seen some of the very worst of this place and some of the very best. Well, I think it's you're absolutely right on that, Ed, but perhaps because you and I tend to look for these things more. We tend to notice them. I don't know if, if everyone is, is as... Uh, um, tuned in and recognize these things as much as we... Oh, I didn't go through your family experience. (laughs) We're both watchers of the housing market, right? So I think, you know, we're more in tune to things that happen. Uh, You know, if you took the average family in in, uh, South Surrey and we told them about our outrage at the decisions that were made in North Vancouver District Council, they would go, what? Uh What are you talking about? I don't know anything about that. I don't care about that. You know, to us, it's a, it's a big deal, but it's not a big deal to everyone. No. But our job? Make it a big deal. Yeah. And thanks for helping me out. <laughs> Someone's got to do it, right? Well, you betcha. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, pleasure, Mark. Oh, been thanks a pleasure. Thanks for telling your story. Always good talking to you, Gordon.